Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll take a look at the challenges Colorado women face in re-entering the workforce. Plus, we'll talk with a restaurant owner about making difficult choices to help her businesses survive the pandemic. We were going to be losing less money if we just paid our rent and utilities than we would if we were trying to remain operational. Those stories and more, just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. In April of 2020, the rate of women in the Colorado workforce hit its lowest point in 20 years. By the end of the year, fewer women were working in Colorado than when the pandemic began. Now, as businesses slowly begin to reopen and jobs start to return, women are facing a new slate of hurdles when it comes to re-entering the workforce and some longstanding challenges made worse by the pandemic. In a few minutes, we'll check in with a Denver restaurateur who has managed her businesses through staff furloughs and a temporary closure over the winter. But first, to get a macro-level look at the impact of the pandemic on Colorado's female workforce, we're joined by Kristen Blessman, the president and CEO of the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce. Kristen, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me. A look at the labor data paints a pretty grim picture for workers here in Colorado, and that's especially true for women. Can you tell us more from what you've seen at the head of the chamber about how this pandemic has affected women in business? This is not a new problem from our perspective. It's just a bigger problem now. So COVID is shining a bright light on a problem that we've been addressing for many, many years here at the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce. We call it the leaky pipeline. And basically what that translates to from our perspective is women leaving the workforce when life and other priorities come into play besides just work. And the perception is, or at least how it's being role modeled for us as women, is that we can't you know, continue to commit 150% to work, be at home for our children, take care of all of the household duties that are you know, present for us as women and um, grow in the workforce and, and grow our business. And so the perception is, that we can't do it all. So if we're in a position to do that, we drop out of the workforce so that we can take care of other priorities and needs besides just work. You know, for us, you know, it's just bigger now. More women are leaving, you know, especially because of COVID, because there aren't childcare options and school is still not back in person. So we've really had no choice. How do you think the pandemic has slowed your progress towards addressing that leaky pipeline? You know, I will tell you at the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce, we have programs that specifically address that. So all of what we do is designed to give women the choice to grow to the highest level in their organization or to grow their business to the revenue or get funding as they see fit, because our perception right now is that it's not a choice. And so I think everybody should be concerned about this because with millions of women leaving the workforce, you know, when you have two parent families working, there's more money going into the economy and more spending. Women have 80% of the purchasing power. So we all need to be concerned about this because when you have millions of women leaving the workforce and that money goes away, economic recovery doesn't happen. I don't care what some of the economists are saying. 
the economy is not going to come back in Colorado until we have women back in the workforce. I guess it's a blessing and a curse that this is happening on such a massive level because, again, we need men and women addressing this problem. So we can't just have, you know, women saying, hey, we want to make a difference. We want more programs. We want things to change. We need men at the table to say the same thing. We need allies for all ships to rise. So I think what the pandemic has done is it's brought this to national attention for everyone involved. And when you have diverse workplaces, you have more successful workplaces. I'm wondering if you think there are any changes that you think will be kind of a net positive outcome on a long enough timeline. I'm thinking about things like more opportunities for remote work. Yeah, I mean, I do. I think that we've proven that, you know, with remote work options, we can still be productive at home. So I think that that's huge. I think that there's there's a lot of legislation right now for, you know, help with childcare. I've seen companies come to the table and provide more options, um, helping with childcare, different types of benefits to encourage women to stay in the workplace. So I think all of those are amazing. I do think down the road when we get women back in the workplace, you know, the perception was that we really can't be mothers or care for elderly or have a household and have it all. And I think what we're learning is you can't have it all at the same time, but we can have it all. And I think what I'm hoping will come out of this is that women will persevere and understand that they can grow their businesses and they can get into the highest levels of leadership, despite the fact that they have these other lives and really strive for more work-life balance. I will say that that's not possible right now when schools aren't open and childcare centers are struggling. But I think that when those supports come back into play several years down the road, we will see some of the goals that we've set forth for women accomplished. What do you see as the most significant challenges facing women in Colorado right now? Our members, even pre-pandemic, we surveyed them and we said, you know, what are the top three things that you feel are holding women back from advancing in the workplace. And unconscious bias and corporate culture, um, communication and lack of mentorship and sponsorship at the top were the top three. The one I'm concerned about the most is the unconscious bias one. We all have it. I'm not, you know, speaking poorly of anyone that does. I have it as well. But what I'm worried about will come into play is when companies are looking to replace roles and and maybe they don't want to adopt a flexible workplace. Maybe they, they don't have the type of culture where work from home always works. I know here at the chamber, you know, I'm considering that right now, too, because there is still some, you know, in office time that I feel is important. So my fear is hiring managers will will think, oh, well, you know, with women, they've expected this flexible workplace and we don't really do that. So in the back of their mind, they're thinking this and they might, you know, want to replace this woman's role with a man or with the women that have left the workforce and they are home and they're not ready to come back. The role gets filled by a man because it may seem that they're more readily available. So I haven't seen that happen yet, but I know that unconscious bias exists and my fear is that that might happen. Kristen Blessman is the president and CEO of the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce. Kristen, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks, Henry. We're going to turn now to hear from a working woman in Denver who's managed to keep her businesses afloat through the pandemic. 
Last December, we met Aileen Riley, a restaurant owner with two establishments in the uptown neighborhood of Denver. She was struggling to figure out how to keep her doors open amid tightening COVID-19 restrictions. As soon as I heard that 8 o'clock curfew, my mind started spinning about, what are we going to do? Are we going to be able to open up for lunch? How are we going to be able to sit these more than one time a night? Then we learned that she had decided to shut her doors and let her restaurants hibernate through the winter. Closing temporarily was her best chance to survive in the long term. We were losing so much money. We were going to be losing less money if we just paid our rent and utilities um, than we would if we were trying to remain operational. Now, with federal aid starting to flow into the state and COVID-19 restrictions continuing to loosen up, we wanted to check back in with Aileen Riley to learn how she's doing now. KUNC's Ray Solomon caught up with her this week for an update. So Eileen, things are looking pretty different now than they did the last time we spoke, which was in January. Can you tell us about the fate of your two restaurants? Yeah. So when we had closed in January, our reopening was based on three things. And that was better weather, guest confidence, and PPP or some sort of better relief. Coming into April, um, yes, we're looking a lot different for many reasons. And of course, the first is weather. Having days like Sunday really helped the atmosphere of being able to use our patios, be able to have more seats. We say better guest confidence um, and vaccines are coming. Um, it's re- it was really exciting to see that as a state, we're going to open those up this Friday for everybody. But it was a huge win for the restaurant industry when uh, restaurant workers were eligible. Getting a lot of our team already vaccinated has been very exciting for us on that reopening side. And then the last thing was federal relief, which did, you know, unfortunately took its time in December and how long it took. Um, But we were able to obtain a PPP loan, which, of course, makes it a lot easier to operate under restrictions and just and not having business for almost a year at this point. Um, these things were, were really what we were looking for, um, and we now see them coming together, which is um, why we are looking at now reopening both of our restaurants. What was the moment you knew it was time to fire up the stove again? Ooh, I, I wouldn't think there was probably one specific moment. I think there was um, a few things here and there. Um, the one that we were really waiting for, that if I had to select one, was definitely when we received the loan. When that happened, which actually didn't happen until mid-March, um, that for us was probably a little bit more because we knew weather was was on our side soon. The day we got the loan, that was probably our more like, okay, let's go. <laughs> it's time. The last time we spoke, you had just furloughed your remaining staff, which was already down to sort of a fraction of your typical number of employees. How many people have you been able to bring back? Well, we would be bringing back everybody that when when we had to do furloughs back in um, January, that we had positions for everybody. Um, and we also are doing a little bit more expanding um, just because of the weather. Um, towards the end of last year, when we did close for indoor dining, we weren't really using a lot of outdoor seating. So now coming into the patio, that's also why we're looking at growing our team um, because we'll, we'll want a few more people to then assist as we open the patios in full. So did you find that some of the people that you had added to furlough last year, that they'd moved on to other types of work and they wouldn't be coming back? We, we did. Um, we actually had a few more people move than necessarily um, I would say that, but, but yes, we had, we had some staff make a career change um, that are not coming back to, to the restaurant industry. Okay, so looking into your crystal ball, are you ready to declare yourself in the clear? Have you survived the pandemic officially? 
I would like to say, yes, my, my, I feel very strongly that my businesses are in the clear. Um, and I really feel a lot of that was us, whether or not it was hard or, you know, or, di- or difficult decision, but us making those closures for two months really is allowing us to be strong as we come back around. Um, I know my businesses have, have made it through. Um, and I would even say now, barring anything super crazy, even another, you know, any sort of, if there's another spike or anything, I still feel like we're, we've, we've put ourselves in good shape. I definitely feel like there's still going to be challenges. So, I mean, but no matter what, I think any of us who are in the own a business or, <laughs> or in restaurants know that that's the case, but I do feel very, um, I feel really good about it. I know myself, my business partners, my management team, um, as we're, you know, getting ourselves back up and running, like it's just really exciting. Um, and I feel, I feel good that, you know, we, we have a, a kind of a goal to get through and we, you know, ho- hopefully soon we, we all can say and look back and, think about what quarantine was like. Um, I think we're a little, I think that's a little too close for now, but, but one day it'll be nice to turn around and think about these times and you know, how different things once were, but we're ready to get back a little bit to normalcy one day at a time. That was KUNC's Ray Solomon speaking with Denver restaurateur Aileen Riley. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. This month last year, close to two weeks after the first known cases of COVID-19 were announced in the state, Governor Jared Polis ordered a four-week closure of all schools, public and private, across Colorado. At that point, there was a lot of uncertainty for students, parents, and educators alike. Now, a year later, education in the state is in a better position. Teachers and school staff are getting vaccinated. Colorado schools are set to get nearly $1.2 billion in federal stimulus funding. And recently updated guidance from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has opened the door for more school reopenings. We're joined now by Erica Meltzer, Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. She's with us to update us on the world of education here in the state and to give us a picture of the challenges still ahead. Erica, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to start quickly with the vaccine rollout. We learned earlier this week that the general public in Colorado will become eligible to receive the vaccine starting this Friday. Can you give us a sense of how the vaccine rollout is going among educators and school staff? Vaccination for educators opened in early February, and that group had a dedicated supply of vaccine for the first three weeks. And so more than three quarters of child care staff and K-12 staff have been vaccinated and most school districts are on track to have the majority of their staff have the full benefit of those vaccines, basically around now, around spring break time. You know, not everyone has wanted it. And that's that, uh, that percentage has varied among different districts in terms of what percentage have been willing to get vaccinated. And that's been true of, of every eligible group. And so it might be a while till we're at full vaccination. And of course, while there's trials underway, we don't yet have a vaccine available for most school-aged children. Does vaccinating school staff, does that have a big effect on how schools operate? So there's new guidance that says that people who are who have been fully vaccinated don't need to quarantine after an exposure. And so that's certainly, I think, been helpful to school districts trying to address these staffing challenges. At the same time, If you have a student who tests positive, the students who were exposed to that classmate do still have to quarantine. And so it hasn't made the quarantine issue completely go away. And hopefully as more of the general public becomes vaccinated, we'll start to see those incidents also reduce. 
Speaking of how schools operate, the CDC recently updated its guidance and reduced the distance it recommended between students from six feet down to three feet. Some Colorado schools were already down to three feet. Tell us about this recent guidance and what it means for other schools in the state. Yes, state guidance here in Colorado actually allowed um, three feet of distancing at the elementary level for this entire school year. But with that six feet guidance out there, I think for a lot of people, they felt that that was the safer way to go. Or for high school students, they also wanted to maintain that distance because they are thought to transmit the virus more like adults. So having the the guidance be three feet, I think it has helped some school districts offer more days of school rather than a hybrid schedule. One reason a lot of Colorado school districts were using a hybrid schedule for middle school and high school was to have smaller class sizes and maintain those distances. We're seeing a lot of Colorado school districts bring their middle and high school students back four to five days a week. And I think having that guidance to allow less distance, allows larger class sizes, allows more days of school a week. And not, not everyone is entirely comfortable with this, but this is the guidance that we have right now from the CDC, and this is the direction that we're seeing schools move. I mentioned briefly that Colorado schools are set to receive nearly $1.2 billion in federal funding through the American Rescue Plan. When will schools start to receive that money, and can you tell us about how they can spend it? The American Rescue Plan money um, is going from the federal government to the states this month, and so schools should start to get that money pretty soon here. It's worth noting that this is the third federal aid package and Colorado schools also got a chunk of the state's CARES Act money in the fall. And so a lot of schools actually have not yet spent down the previous federal aid package. And this money can be spent through 2024. So we're going to see the effects of this money in the system for several years to come. There's a really broad set of things that you can use this money on, but 20% of it does have to be set aside to address learning loss or academic gaps that have opened up during the pandemic. So I think we're starting to see a lot of discussion of what that might look like and what would be the best way to do that. Should we do summer school? Should we do after school programs with tutoring? You know, what is it that teachers and students will have the energy to take on after this really exhausting year? And, and what kinds of programs can we staff? Let's stick with legislative matters, but turn to the state of Colorado. Students here will be taking fewer tests overall this spring, thanks to a U.S. Department of Education waiver from federal testing requirements. Tell us more about this waiver and how it came to be, and then what it's going to mean for students across the state. This is an interesting case because Colorado took a different approach than many states. And instead of trying to get rid of the test entirely, they said, instead of a literacy and math test in every grade, what if students in some grades took the literacy test and students in other grades took the math test? And the federal government did give their okay to this plan, which was critical because we would have lost out on a lot of federal aid money if we didn't have this waiver. There were some people that wanted to scrap the test entirely and and that was not viable. What this does is it allows the state to take a sampling of how students are doing. And what they're hoping is that they'll get enough people taking the test, including enough people from what in education jargon is called subgroups. So for example, they want to look at how are students of color doing compared to their white peers? How are students with disabilities doing compared to their non-disabled peers? How are students who qualify for free and reduced lunch doing compared to more well-off students? And 
by taking these um, alternating years, they're, they're hoping to still get sort of a statewide sample and see, for example, what are some areas where maybe there's larger gaps or what are districts that are having a harder time and could use some support. But I think one of the really critical questions is, once we get this data back, then, you know, what will we do about it? Eric Melter is Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Erica, thanks as always for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Tribes in the Colorado River Basin are calling for more influence in how the climate-stressed river is managed. As negotiations kick off on a new set of rules for river management, tribal leaders are optimistic, but say they need concrete proof their perspectives will be heard. KUNC's Luke Runyon spoke with Fort Yuma Quachon Tribe President Jordan Joaquin about the negotiations. The tribe's land includes a portion of the Colorado River on the Arizona-California border. President Joaquin, you made a statement recently that you welcomed the Biden administration's commitment to having more engagement with the Colorado River Basin tribes, but that you want to see some meaningful changes in how tribes can be involved in decision-making in the basin. What kind of changes would you want to see as, as some of these negotiations get started in earnest? We want to be at the table. And we don't want uh, any administration for us tribes, for my tribe, to be part of the problem, but part of the solution. And so for many years, when there's water issues that arise, it's we're the last to be told. And when we finally, they finally, the government finally reaches out to us, it's at the very end of discussions, very end of negotiations, pretty much decisions have already been made. And it's just a a follow through process of, okay, tribes, what do you want? What do you guys want to hear? What do you guys want to do? Pretty much the decisions already have already been made. So what we expect out of the Biden administration is true consultation, true listening to tribes to be part of the solution. What do you see as top priorities for your tribe? Our priorities is to always never lose our water rights, one and to protect the assets in our own interest within our tribe. Every tribe has its priorities, every tribe has its own interests, but when we come to the table, we have to come with a unified voice for all tribes. And so as we discuss with other tribes, their needs, their priorities, we tell them ours. When we go to the table, we have to have one unified voice to make sure we protect the rights of all, all river tribes. What do you see as the most pressing problem that's facing the Colorado River Basin? The drought levels. We have uh, so many pictures of our history and the water was like an ocean coming through our reservation. You know, a large, large water levels were very high. And as I look at the pictures of the past, as I see the river today, it's so, le- it's so low, it, it, it saddens me. You mentioned earlier that tribes have this unique perspective and this unique cultural connection to the river that maybe other water users in the basin don't necessarily have. Can you explain that just a little bit more? We lived off the water, the Colorado River. Uh, We farmed our own, uh, grew our own vegetables, uh, corn, squash, uh, that was our that was our own farming, if you will, and eating fish. And so when I say water is life, that's what kept us living for so long, and it's still keeping us living. And so we need to 
continue that. And if there's no water to farm our fields, you know, and uh, we have at our reservation, the tribe, you know, we lease our land out to our farmers. And so if we didn't have water to, you know, for the farmers, then we would not have um, our farmland to lease. And so that's why it's so crucial. One thing I've heard before is that if you know one tribe, you know one tribe. And that there are potential disagreements or different perspectives within tribes in the basin as well. What are what are some of those ways in which tribes maybe don't see eye to eye on on water issues? For some tribes, you know, they may want to come into an agreement with the city or uh, an entity to say, yeah, sure, we'll lease. You know, we'll give you some water to sell and to lease. Um, but other tribes may be just against that and said, no, we're, don't touch our water. And so every tribe has its own priorities. And if it benefits the whole membership as a whole community, as a whole, absolutely, you know, Kachan would be looking for um, options. Uh, but what works for Kachan may not work for another tribe upriver as well. That was Fort Yuma Quachan Tribe President Jordan Joaquin speaking with KUNC's Luke Runyon. This interview is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River Basin, supported by the Walton Family Foundation. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we get the story behind the shortest prohibition in Denver's history. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.